Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Principle of Charity. I'm Lloyd Vogelman and I'm here with my cousin and buddy, Emil Sherman. We're here to inject some generosity and curiosity back into our conversations. Principle of Charity tells us to seek the truth, not win the fight. In fact, we start the podcast asking each of our guests to present the most generous version of the other's viewpoint. Emil will then lead a conversation with the guests exploring what they really think. And later, I'll focus some more on the Principle of Charity itself. Our topic today is, is it moral to eat meat? Emil, tell us a little bit more. Thanks, Lloyd. So, is it moral to eat meat? We humans have been eating meat pretty much since the dawn of our species. But the number of humans, the amount of meat we eat, and the way we raise these animals is nothing like the world of our ancestors, even those of 100 years ago. In 2018, according to the UN, worldwide an estimated 69 billion chickens one and a half billion pigs and a few billion turkeys, goats, sheep and cattle were killed for food. And over a trillion sea animals were killed as well for food. In the last 50 years, the number of people on the planet has doubled, but the amount of meat we eat has more than tripled. Now, most of this extra demand has come from middle income countries, particularly China, but the appetite for meat in Western countries remains huge. We know that agriculture in general, but in particular meat production, plays a big role in greenhouse gas emissions, and for a bunch of reasons which we'll hopefully explore, eating meat seems to be one of the least efficient ways of converting energy from the world around us and bringing it into our bodies. So how do all these animals live? In the US, it's estimated that 99% of farmed animals live in factory farms, and in Australia, it's 95%. Have we as a society sanctioned the way these animals are raised for our consumption, do we even know exactly what goes on behind those closed walls? So how are we to make sense morally with this incredibly complex topic of meat? We have the fundamental question of whether it's right to take a life that is sentient and conscious. But then there are the, the core questions of our evolution, our nature, our culture, and our taste buds, all powerful forces that drive most of us to eat meat. There are questions around diet and health, around climate change and pollution, and questions around the morality of more humane practices like free-range farming and whether we can really feed the world's growing billions that way uh, at an affordable price. But at the core of this are the sentient creatures, the animals whose experiences we are only starting to understand. We literally hold their lives in our hands. Have we fully reckoned with that responsibility? Who are we going to bring on? Who are our guests, Lloyd, to help us unpack all of this? Uh, and we know they've got different views on the topic. Thanks, Emil. We've got two great guests today. Uh, we have Matthew Evans. Matthew Evans is a television presenter, famous food critic, and a prolific author. He has written an ethical meat manifesto called On Eating Meat. And Matthew has a pig farm and a mixed holding that grows food for his on-farm restaurant in Tasmania. Our other guest, you know well is Ondine Sherman. Uh, Ondine is the co-founder and managing director of Voiceless, the Animal Protection Institute. Ondine is also an author. Her latest book is called Vegan Living, and she's also director of the conservation NGO, This Is My Earth. Ondine will join us, uh, Emil, from uh, Tel Aviv today. And let me tell you a little bit more. Um, Matthew and Ondine both care a lot about animals and the environment, but they have some very, very different views. Matthew, I know, has felt quite bullied by the vegan movement, and I know Ondine has some real issues with Matthew's conclusions and was quite tentative about coming on this podcast. Uh, we had to do a lot of arm twisting. And just finally, before we bring on the guests, I want to remind the audience that we will first be asking Matthew to present the most generous version of Ondine's viewpoint, and then vice versa. 
After that, we'll get into their real views. Let's bring on the guests. Matthew and Ondine, welcome to both of you. Matthew, I'll start with you. And where, where are you, by the way? Uh, I'm at my farm in, in southern Tasmania. So just finished the day's cooking and, and farming. Um, but thanks for having me, Lloyd, and thanks for asking. Beautiful. What, 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 I have to ask you, what did you cook? Well, we have a market garden. So we, we grow 70 species of annual vegetable and, and whatever's in season. So at the moment, it's actually uh, what we call the hungry patch. So we're doing asparagus, uh, the early broad beans, but hardly any of those. Um, all our brassicas are pretty much finished. Um, so we're pretty much surviving on polenta, um, kale, uh, and, and late-season broccoli. Okay, good stuff. And Dean, where are you today? I'm sitting in sunny Israel um, mm-hmm. on the other side of the world, but my brain and most other things are in Australia, as always, <laughs> since I work remotely. And, uh, yeah, but thanks for having me on. Lovely. Well, you know, I first have to disclose here, as listeners may have guessed, that Ondine is in fact my sister. So I'm going to try my best not to be prejudiced against her, as people who have uh, brothers and <laughs> I know, it works know. against me, that <laughs> fact. <laughs> I'll start with Matthew then. Just to ask you, Matthew, to go forth and present, you know, the most generous version as you see it for the view that Ondine probably would ascribe. I think uh, Ondine's uh, way of approaching the world is driven through kindness. So I think she has she sees fairness and kindness as driving principles behind everything that she does. And her veganism is an expression of that. So in uh, everything um, that she is doing in her life, uh, she likes to, um, I think, have a moral focus for that. And her diet um, is, is a, an area where she feels she can have a huge impact and other people can have a huge impact and hence her activism. And so I think she's, she believes very firmly that, um, that we exploit animals, that we shouldn't exploit animals. And one of the, the, the main ways you can um, uh, influence change is to be an activist in the space and get people to stop uh, consuming them, essentially, stop killing them and stop abusing them and stop using them in, you know, for the cosmetics industry, for, um, you know, for, for medical testing and all sorts of things, but particularly for, to not eat them because that's something that we're all involved in every day is making choices about our diet. Lovely, lovely. So at the core of it, that there's a, an immorality of eating animals, of killing animals. Yes, yeah. I think she's very driven by um, the, the concept of kindness and being fair to uh, not just to other humans but to other species. Lovely, lovely. Okay. Well, Ondine, uh, how would you present the ethical omnivore? viewpoint. Firstly, thanks, Matthew. That was a very nice <laughs> summary. Um, and I feel that that was, yeah, a good representation. I mean, what I thought I would do um, first before I go into presenting his view is just go through all the things we agree on, because there's actually so many things that we agree on um, and things in common. I mean, I think um, what Matthew is saying in his book and his interviews and what I've read is that factory farming is, is terrible. And it needs to stop. You know, animals suffer horribly in factory farming industries. You've got meat chickens and hens and um, and uh, feedlots and so on. And another big issue is the transparency of these big industries and how secretive and evasive uh, they are and how crucial transparency is. And I, I see that as being a really important kind of ethic uh, for Matthew, with that, which I agree with 100%. And I think consumers should and must know, you know, and have access to information. And it's actually, when we first started Voiceless, was our big phrase is lifting the veil of secrecy because transparency is key. We also agree, as Matthew says, that um, animals, you know, need to ex- express their normal behavior. I know he has, you know, relationships with all the animals on his farm. You know, they are sociable, intelligent, complex creatures and they deserve to express themselves um, and be, you know, emotionally well and intellectually well. Um, And that also, you know, our primary aim should be in a big picture to, like, reduce um, the massive consumption of animals, which, you know, is caused by these huge industries, you know, 70 billion animals are killed every year around the world. And, you know, Australia and the US are the biggest 
consumers of, of meat and animal products. So I think, you know, that's a really important aim that um, we share. You know, another thing is that, you know, strategies of using anger and guilt and judgment to try and convince people that you're right and they're wrong isn't helpful and it isn't um, strategic. And I know Matthew's felt attacked by vegans in the past, and I apologize on behalf of everyone for this. I don't think it's helpful to be attacking each other and having conversations is important. Just quickly, you know, in terms of the environmental issues, I know that um, Matthew, you know, has strong environmental concerns um, and, you know, Land clearing for cattle and feeding cows grain and feedlots and overgrazing are all huge environmental issues and there's huge environmental costs um, every time uh, that we grow or produce animals. And that, you know, he believes that there should be more, more of a focus on wildlife kill during common agricultural practices, um, which I think is a great idea because, as he points out in his book, there's like millions and millions of uh, wild animals killed, you know, when we farm crops such as peas and so on. Um, I mean, his summary, I guess, where his conclusion is, is where we disagree. But what, what he's saying is that given that people are unlikely to totally give up eating meat because it's so embedded in our culture and it tastes good and it's, you know, pleasurable, um, let's focus on creating, you know, humane, ethical animal industries um, or farming um, in, with small amounts, much smaller amounts of animals being killed um, that obviously treat animals better. Um, and that, you know, he also believes that this kind of narrow focus, I guess, on veganism doesn't take into account, you know, the huge amount of damage and killing that we do to animals in other parts of human activities, even flying or driving and so on. Lovely. Lovely. Well, before you guys both get a chance to clarify and further um, expound your own views, Lloyd, our charity barometer, how do you think mm, they both went? Yeah, you're, putting, you're putting me on the, on the spot again. I'm going to – look, I, I'll, I'll, start with, I'll start with Matthew. What I loved about Matthew's depiction was that he started with, with, with a value, and, and the value was that Ondine is driven by kindness and fairness. And I think one of the – the core dimensions of the principle of charity is the acknowledgement of intent, of good intent. Um, and I think that that came through. I, I suppose I'd be interested, and in, as we explore today, Matthew, just some of, of, of your understanding of some of the detail of Ondine's arguments would have been interesting to, to hear um, on, on that side. From Ondine's side, I, I thought Ondine, you articulated brilliantly some of the arguments. I kept on waiting there's a chapter, I think, in one of Matthew's books about vegans don't hurt animals, and it says, think again. And I thought, you, you're not going to mention that, and, and then you did. So I'm, I'm going to have to give you a very high score for the detail uh, of, of how you articulated Matthew's arguments. What I also liked, and I think this is key, is why I'd give you a high score on the principle of charity, is one of the things about the principle of charity is finding areas that we agree on. Um, not just disagree on. And I think that is absolutely part of the DNA of the principle of charity. So I'm going to give them both high marks, but I'm going to give Andina a very high mark. <laughs> Lovely. Okay. Well, great. Well, we'll get into the meat of the discussion, but I guess I just want to acknowledge that both... <laughs> the tofu of the discussion, <laughs> might I correct you? <laughs> Are you trying to influence already, Andina? Are we going to edit that one out? That's great. That's great. You can't say that. <laughs> the tofu of the discussion, but that Ondine, both Ondine and Matt have both thought deeply about the ethics of eating meat um, and killing animals and how to minimise suffering and about what is morally permissible. And they both come to different conclusions. And that's what's exciting about getting you both on the podcast. Matthew, how would you present your view of our relationship with animals and why it is moral to eat meat in the end of the day? Yeah, look, it's really fraught, I think, our relationship with animals, uh, first and foremost. I, th I don't think we understand our relationship with animals fully. I think um, we are very driven by the things that make us human. So we are driven by um, characteristics that remind us of ourselves. So uh, soft eyes, warm blood, um, cuteness. Um, we are much more uh, aware of animals that we that we 
we give human characteristics or, or we can see we can see some humanness in them. So, so, so our pets at home, you know, cats and dogs, but also other warm-blooded animals, we're much more concerned about them than we are about slugs and, and lizards and that kind of thing. And I, so I think our relationship is fraught. And I think it's fraught for other reasons that a lot of us feel guilty for, uh, you know, if, if, if an animal suffers or dies um, and, uh, and we take that as, as though that suffering um, was happening to us or, or people around us. Um, and so I, I think most people, most modern people, you know, in, in modern societies, um, you know, in, in, in developed nations uh, have, a, have a very uh, torn relationship with animals because on the one hand they fetishise and, and, um, and they sort of put, put them on a pedestal like they're pets and on the, other, on the other hand they will eat something that comes from a, a farming system that if they could see behind the closed gate they would think was abhorrent. Um, and they're very able to close off the bit that doesn't want to see what happens behind the clo- closed gate when they choose to eat meat. Um, so my, the best word I can think of is fraught. So why don't we jump to you, Ondine, um, and ask you why you think it's essentially immoral to eat meat? I mean, I think I want to start with a disclaimer that I, when I'm talking about the morality or ethics of eating meat, I'm talking about, you know, let's, let's start with Australia, um, uh, as Matthew says, a developed and privileged country where we have access to supermarkets and and food of all kinds. I'm not talking about a remote sub-Saharan village in, in Africa. Um, given that we're talking about Australia uh, or the US or the UK and so on, um, I think, you know, if you're talking about morality, killing animals for food you know, obviously causes them death. <laughs> You're taking someone's life. Um, and in addition to that, it, there's, a, there's still a lot of suffering, even on, you know, the, the best, most ethical farms. Um, and part of the kind of industry of, of suffering for commercial killing of any animals is, you know, we're talking about in Australia, there's 12 million male chicks still killed in the hen industry. And that's the free range hen industry included. Um, and there's, you know, 800,000 male bobby calves or, you know, calves that are killed as waste products in the dairy industry. Um, so you're still causing death and the suffering that goes along with that, for example, in the transportation of these animals to the slaughterhouse, you know, bodily mutilations such as tail lock docking or castration without any pain relief, um, debeaking still happens. You know, there's there's still like a huge amount of suffering that happens when you um, commercially and industrially um, slaughter large numbers of beings. Um, is it moral to do that when we can live healthy, happy lives with access to every kind of food and nutrition available that um, enables us to make a choice not to partake in those industries? Um, the answer I would, I'm saying is yes. Like, I don't think if we have a choice, you know, of, uh, causing suffering and killing somebody, um, versus not, you know, uh, if we can still live a healthy, you know, happy life that way, there's no moral justification for it. If everybody will then go out and do it, you know, there's obviously like lots and lots of obstacles in people's way, you know, habits and cultures and so on. So I'm not talking about the behavior, but I'm talking about the moral principle um, of killing somebody and causing suffering to them um, needlessly, in fact. So, Matthew, I mean, I take it that you don't agree with that, that, you know, at the foundation, there are a lot of things we will get into in this conversation, but I want to start at the beginning, which is that you have an animal, a sentient being with a, a life that, you know, we all acknowledge um, exists and has richness and has an experience of consciousness to it. And a core ethical principle would say that sentience gives rise to the right to exist and to not being killed. And if you kill a sentient being, you are breaching their rights to exist. Is that something, you know, is that something you disagree with on, on principle? Uh, I don't agree with disagree with it on principle, but I think um, it's very easy to oversimplify stuff. So if you talk about that sentient being, perhaps it's the cockatoo that I just saw dead hanging from my mate's uh, a post in my mate's orchard because it's it's eating the fruit 
uh, that they that, you know, that they grow, and the only way they can protect their orchard is by uh, killing that animal. Yeah, it's not maybe it's not a great thing to have killed that animal, but um, animals die all the time. And the thing with taking a sentient being's life uh, for food is not something that you should single out the meat industry for, because um, like on our farm, we kill more animals growing veg. We we, have, we grow seventy species of annual vegetable. We grow thirty species of perennial um, plants. Uh, you know, the majority of our uh, what we serve on the farm and we eat is grown in the garden. But we kill way, way, way more animals in the garden than we do on the rest of the farm put together. And some of those are warm-blooded, and some of them are what you would classify as sentient, and some of them are not. Some of them are you know, maybe wouldn't be classified as sentient and things like slugs and snails and that sort of thing. But a lot of them are. And um, I think there's this misconception that when you're growing food, you have, you're competing with everything else that wants to eat it. And so it's very hard to grow food and not kill something else that wants to eat it, whether that be a, a grasshopper, a lizard, a slug, um, a deer, um, a kangaroo or something else. So the actual taking of a life to put it on the plate to have a nutrient-dense food, um, high-quality you know, high protein and heme iron and all that kind of stuff, is just one life among the many lives that, um, that we take to be able to grow food and, uh, and, and get it on the tables of Australians. So there's a lot of focus on, on the livestock industry and, um, and, and worry about those lives, but there's, there's not a lot of care for the other lives that, you know, that the things that die to grow all food. Right. Well, I think that's really clearly espoused and you want to take that focus away from the narrow lens on the animals that are killed under our protection into the ecosystem as a whole and the animals that are killed across that. Ondine, how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, I find that logic uh, curious. <laughs> I, doesn't, I don't understand the logic. I mean, I, to summarize what I hear Matthew say and what I've read in his book, what he's saying is that, you know, factory farming is bad, agreed. However, we kill animals in other ways, such as when we eat peanut butter, we're killing insects. Um, so therefore, everything we do has an impact. Um, so let's throw up our hands and it's all too hard. So we may as well eat animals too but let's do it humanely. Um, I mean, my logic is that factory farming is bad. Yes, we kill animals in other ways, insects and our peanut butter, um, but let's try and address those issues too. This isn't a zero-sum game. This isn't like two wrongs make a right. Let's look at insect-free peanut butter and predator-friendly farming and not killing cockatoos on, you know, trees and, you know, wildlife crossings on over highways and better window designs so, you know, birds don't get killed by windows. I mean, all these kind of things that Matthew's brought up. And let's work towards veganism, which is clearly like a goal that is looking to protect animals in the most holistic way. So by kind of saying, well, we kill animals other, way, other ways, so we may as well, that just isn't, I don't find it like a logical progression. I mean, also I would argue that one is manslaughter and the other one is murder, if we, if we compare it with humans. I mean, to use an example, someone can go into a public park and put a bomb there you know, and um, the chances of them killing someone might be the same as uh, someone driving on a windy road when it's raining. I mean, the person who has planted the bomb would be convicted of murder and the person mm -hmm. who might accidentally hit someone on the road, that would be manslaughter. So that's a key point on there. And I did want to ask you about this, Matthew, um, because you, you brought in the frame so that animals under our care or the care of the farmer, let's say, and if you have a cow and you're breeding cows or pigs, that particular relationship that a farmer has with the animal where it's under its care, you're treating the same essentially as the inadvertent deaths that are likely to be caused by things like pesticides from animals that are not under one's care. Do you think that it is morally equivalent that an animal that one kills oneself for meat is the same as the animal who who comes across the pesticides and dies because, you know, you're, you put pesticides on to protect crops? Probably not with things like pesticides, but if you frame it this way, and, and I'm, you know, I, I, I'm a little bit surprised that Ondine's 
well, I guess, I guess she sees, she, she probably, um, she talks about murder and, and manslaughter. And it's often a, where the, the debate ends up because um, I don't think killing a, a non-human animal as murder, but just to put it in context for, for I'm Ondine, just making the moral equivalent. Yeah, I know. Like but, if we, but, if, but vegans yeah. do it all the time. And, and I think non-vegans often say, well, it's all about attachment. And, and very few of us would compare the attachment to another human uh, to be the same as the, the attachment to a, to a swallow or, a, uh, or to a cow or, you know, and, and, and to say that that is murder, I think, I think a lot of people would reject that. But just to frame it in, in a sense that you might... I meant um, intentional versus accidental yeah, or yeah, 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 as a byproduct. Yeah yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So just to frame it, okay, so, so around me, we're an orchard, orchard uh, region. So, you know, when I drive past the cherry farm up the road and I see him moving his traps off the, uh, you know, out of the orchard in the morning... What he has done is he's trapped possums and he has looked them in the eye, chosen the victim, okay, taken his gun out and blown their brains out, knowing that that is the victim of his actions to grow cherries at the price that people are willing to pay. And that's, that is done all, when people are shooting the, you know, the, the lorikeets or the cockatoos that are eating the pistachios or the almonds, they're choosing a victim. It's, yes, pesticides is more broad, Possibly uh, more more harmful in in the in, in the ecological sense, but um, uh, it, it, it's not all just as you might put it, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, murder or, or um, you know or not. It's so killing the lorikeet or the or the the bird who's eating the pistachio is essentially the same in your view as killing the cow to eat the cow. It's choosing a victim. It's not, it's not, oh, my God, what an accident. I fired my gun and something died. It's I've got that cockatoo, I've got that possum, I've got that deer, I've got that wallaby, I've got that whatever it is in my sights and I shoot it. And then you'd say there's a subtle but meaningful distinction or that's the same? I mean, I, I acknowledge what Matthew's saying and I think it's a really important point. I guess what frustrates me and what I think is a real pity because when I've heard Matthew kind of talk uh, about this subject it feels like the kind of output of what of his message of this message that he's kind of communicating like undermines veganism or undermines you know the goals of veganism whereas I would think that you know I mean I can hear that Matthew's really passionate about these issues you know like looking at possums being killed in cherry farming for example and that is like a really important issue like, wouldn't it be better to say, well, veganism's a noble goal. Let's, like, try and get to, towards that kind of world. Um, and at the same time, like, let's address some of these horrific things that are going on in farming that are causing mass death of, of wildlife as well. Like, I just, yeah, I just find it um, frustrating that the two are working against each other instead of a parallel goal of like, let's try and stop all animal abuse as much as we can. In thinking about this difference that you both come to this core question of the morality of eating meat, I, I came up with a theory. I want to run it by you both. That in a way you're both ending the statement, it's immoral to eat meat with different second halves. Ondine is saying it's immoral to eat meat and it may also be immoral to eat crops in the way we produce them today. So let's not eat meat, but also do better with crops. And Matthew, you're assuming the statement says it's immoral to eat meat, but moral to eat crops. And that's what irks you with some of veganism's views, as they're sort of putting crops on this high moral threshold, high moral level, mm -hmm. but saying meat is immoral. And you're saying, no, it's not true that it's immoral to eat meat, but moral to eat crops. I don't think it's immoral to eat meat because I see ecosystems as, uh, as, as whole things and that animals exist within ecosystems, we exist within ecosystems. You take animals out of ecosystems and they collapse. And so in, in some places at some time, uh, I think it's okay to eat meat because that's what the ecosystem needs, what it demands might, and what works well in that area. Um, I really don't care if people are vegan or not. I think actually it's up to each individual to decide whether it's moral or not to eat meat. Um, but they should use they should use you know a, a wide range of sources to make that value judgment. And I've decided for me that it's moral to eat meat, and Ondine's decided for her it's it's not moral. The difference is 
she wants everybody to stop eating meat and I really don't care because I think you're all grown-ups and you can make your own decisions. I don't think if you look back in history and you look back in the rise of social justice movements and so on, that you can say that, you know, the big issues about justice and, um, you know, oppression are personal choices. You know, you look at this anti-slavery movement, you know, at the end of that, you didn't say, well, having a slave is my personal choice, you know, um, and, or, uh, you know, beating my wife is my personal choice. Or, you know, when, when your personal choices have victims who are suffering, as in the case of animals today, um, I think it's a political choice and it's a political discussion. And um, the community can set expectations, but the community needs to be informed and they need to be educated. And at the moment with, you know, these huge multinational industries, um, you've got like David and Goliath, you've got little groups like Voiceless, you know, comparing with multi-billion dollar industries, you know, um, pushing their messages through. So I don't think you can say we have a well-informed, educated public on these issues in order to make these kind of decisions. So yeah, I really find, I yeah, I don't accept that it's a personal choice okay. well, just on, <laughs> um, that. on that point. Yeah, yeah so, well, just on that, I mean, uh, so you're making equivalence between humans. Yeah, we talk about slavery. It, it's a common thing. But that's all we can make like. equivalence to. We have no other, you know, so, there's no other equivalence. Like, I'm not saying it's the same. I'm just saying it's the only examples we can use because we don't have any other examples except humans. Sure, sure. But, but okay, so we, so it, I, I guess that comes down to speciesism or considering ourselves, you know, uh, a, um, you know, above other species or are able to exploit other species. And I guess I would wonder at which point that, you know, what, which point down the, 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 the branches of, of life you want to go because, because, because all of life is a continuum, you know. So, so there's bacteria, there's protists, there's nematodes. There are, there are, you know, billions and billions of, of living things in the world. And at which point do we go, you know what, every time I eat an apple, you know, I've, I've killed you know, uh, 2 billion bacteria or whatever it is. It, it, yeah, you, I mean, this argument is, is very questionable because, I mean, we can all we can work on is the current scientific knowledge that we have. And the current scientific knowledge we have, and it's been endorsed, and there's the Cambridge Declaration of Sentience where the world's best scientists have come together and said, this is the line. These animals are sentient and, you know, these aren't. So let's work with that. If we find out that apples are sentient and are crying and screaming each time we eat them, like, we'll address it then, you know. This is probably a good point to ask you, Matthew, because a lot of listeners won't really know, putting aside some of the micro moral questions we're discussing, just what does happen um, in industrial uh, animal um, production, what part of the process do you find immoral? You know, speaking for yourself personally, what where do you draw the line personally? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, from from my perspective, uh, it, it is all about the life. So it's uh, allowing an animal to express its instinct. So if a if a chicken wants to dust bathe, it has access to dust. If a pig wants to wallow, it has access to a muddy. Uh, bath. If a pig wants to nest, or a, you know, a, if a cow wants to eat uh, grass and lie in the shade, um, if it wants to socialise, it should be allowed to do those things. So that means, Matthew, that because by far the majority, I think a statistic I saw was ninety-five percent of Australian animals are reared in factory farms. To sort of bring back to the common ground between you and Ondine, you have a moral problem with ninety-five percent of of the way animals' lives are lived in Australia. Yep, definitely. Yeah, I think I guess no doubt about it. You know, we eat, we eat too much meat, and 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 we eat way too much badly produced meat that that hasn't considered uh, the the animal, the environment, um, or the farmer. You know, the people who who are uh, there's a toll on the people who have to look after those animals as well. I think. So, what are what are the lives like of these animals behind the factory farm walls? What do you know of how they live? Because there is such a veil of secrecy, and it's so hard to get in because of the protection of the big big corporations yeah look i think ondina probably know better than me because um because I, I i refuse to break into the the farms because we were on a farm and we know that breaking into someone breaking into our farm would feel um you know, it's essentially like having your house breaking into so we didn't want to do that so I, I tried knocking on the front door i'm a meat eater i've told them you know i just want to see how how animals are raised pretty much closed door unless they're they're sort of higher ethical standards higher, higher um welfare um 
uh, animals. But look, you know, you, your average, it's about 30% of pigs in Australia, mother pigs in Australia, sows, still live in what's called a sow uh, stall. So it's essentially a bathtub-sized um, cage. It's made out of metal bars. She can only lie uh, or stand up. She can't turn around. Uh, she can't walk anywhere. She's got to have at least one centimetre gap at the front and back and to the side so she's not touching the bars at all times. Um, and then when she's not in that, she goes to a farrowing crate, which is exactly the same thing, um, but a, with a little space at the side where she can have her babies uh, when they farrow, give birth, uh, they go into a farrowing crate for a few weeks. So um, I think about 30% of Australian pigs are still in something like that. This is not, you know, even though they bred pigs to be, you know, emotionally able to cope with this, this is not something, a, you know, a, a, an animal is uh, a mentally, emotionally um, designed for or hardwired for. And I think that's a, that's a you know, it's a, it, it's it's a sad indictment on the industry in Australia and a sad indictment on Australians that they haven't cared enough to change that. I just wanted to address the use his language when he says breaking in because I think that's really important. These industrial farms or factory farms, I don't think it's fair to say activists. I don't actually call myself an activist. I'm an advocate because I'm not out there, you know, doing grassroots action. I'm, I'm doing, you know, advocacy in other ways. But that aside... I don't think it's um, the right language to say that they're breaking in, given the context. I mean, and the context is that there are no cameras in these places, so nobody from the outside can see what's happening. There's a closed-door policy. The Ministry of Agriculture regulates, um, is meant to regulate what's happening in these farms, and that's a conflict of interest uh, because they are also meant to increase the profits of the farms. So they have no uh, motivation or reverse motivation to actually stop any cruelty that's happening. The only ways that we know any of the terrible things that happen inside these farms is through footage and photographs that activists have taken. Um, so until there's an independent office of animal welfare, until there's CCTV cameras in these you know, places, I don't think the words breaking in are, are fair because um, these, as we, you know, as Matthew agrees with me, these are animals' lives. They're, they, they shouldn't be treated terribly and cruelly. And so, you know, um, leaving them in a closed-door system with the only control and no independent oversight is the pe with the people who profit from them isn't okay. This is what you want, isn't it, Matthew? You want you want there to be transparency. And you uh, you said something interesting in your book, I think, about society hasn't really sanctioned what goes on behind those doors. And, you know, that feels like too big uh, an amount of things that are going on behind closed doors for society not to have the opportunity to truly know about it and sanction it. Yeah, it's exactly the problem. If You know, what, what sort of farmer is doing something they're not proud to show Australians? And, you know, what what, what is happening behind the doors? And, and, and um, I'm sorry you took offence at that breaking in, but I mean, I do consider it breaking in, but I think what animal activists do is actually super valuable in that they bring these things to light. But I do feel that there is a, that I couldn't do that kind of thing when I'm, I'm trying to be respectful of the farmers and, and trying to do it in a way, you know, that doesn't, doesn't make them feel at risk because a lot yeah, of they're these, competing ethics there. They're competing ethics, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. These, are, these are human beings. You know, I've I've met some of them who are totally traumatized after people have, have come mm. in, and and you know, they, you know, this is a very weird thing for uh, for for, an, for for people to do to make a human being feel threatened and and vulnerable um, uh, when they're when we're talking kindness, when we're talking generosity, when we're talking. You know, you need to be fair. It's 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 not. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing to make other human beings feel vulnerable. Well, why don't we move? But first, a statistic that I think has really surprised me and Lloyd when we've spoken about. It, I think a lot of people is not that there are a couple of percent or a few percent who are vegan. It's just how many people have been vegan or vegetarian in their life. I saw a statistic that in the US, 84% of the people who've been vegetarian or vegan go back to eating meat. So I want to ask you, Ondine, and then we'll get to you, Matthew. Do you acknowledge, Ondine, that there is a very strong evolutionary and nature pull to eat meat? Because if there wasn't, how do we explain how bloody hard it is? I mean, it's bloody hard because our society and our cultural norms and our childhood upbringing and our friends and family make it bloody hard. And also because, unfortunately, there's this um, 
what did I heard this term the other day, like a toxic moral perfectionism that reigns in the vegan, some of the vegan community. That's if you eat a single spoon of honey in a year, they will chuck you out of the vegan label and you're no longer a vegan. So I would be interested with that um, study and those statistics, you know, to dig down and see how much, even if they're not labeling themselves as vegan or vegetarian anymore, like how much they cut back. Because I would say that to be vegan, you would probably, I would say like 80% vegan is vegan, you know, or vegan enough. Um, so it's, Do you think you know, there's a pull? Do you think there's a, a biological pull towards eating meat? Look, I honestly don't care. Um, I mean, there's probably a biological pull to us killing people. I mean, there's a number of people I could probably just murder today because they, <laughs> they make me angry. I mean, I just, I think we're, you know, like, let's consider ourselves a little bit more elevated than just like our biological pulls. We have biological pulls all day, every day that we say, mm, thanks, but no thanks. And in this particular case, given that all the studies have shown that veganism is a healthy lifestyle and that you can, you know, have all your nutritional needs met. And there is countless amounts of delicious, wonderful vegan food. Um, I think people need to honestly get over themselves. I think your second point is the key one. And I think you don't, I, I would suggest that you don't need to be scared of acknowledging, which maybe you don't feel the pull to meat. And, you know, I have, and I've gone from being a pescatarian to a meat, uh, a reducitarian because of that pull. I think we can acknowledge the pull, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, Matthew, at the same time as saying just because we have a pull towards something doesn't mean we don't need to use our ethical and moral and, and rational brains to, to make decisions around it. What do you think, Matthew? Is this, is this at the core, actually, of your views that we're a species that eats meat and we should get on with it ethically. Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's more multifaceted than that. But, yeah, that is, that's part of it. I'm, I'm actually stoked because about 80% of my diet or more would be, be, I, would be vegan. So I classify as vegan. And, and then, <laughs> I am anointing you. It's fantastic. It's great. It's absolutely brilliant. Thank okay, you. 85. Let's say 85. <laughs> um, I, Come on. Parody. Here's Andine, you're tough. Eh? But, look, I have to say, we, so we eat predominantly vegetables but we you know we, we try to eat what we grow and it, we, you know, we don't produce oil on the farm so we so we produce butter and we produce um animal fats we try to cook with those uh, uh quite often but but actual meat in our meals is actually uh, you know not a huge uh, part of our diet um but there are times and i think this is really interesting that we will sit and eat a uh say a piece of steak or something that we it'd be very you know quite rare that we would do that um you know not rare for um, a lot of people, but for us every three, four months. And we get unbridled pleasure from it. We get embarrassed by how much joy we get from it. And so my partner and I do feel there is a, a pull, a draw to it because, because it makes us feel very different from even the most amazing uh, meals that we've made uh, without meat. Do you, do you need that? No. Um, can, we, can we change? Yeah, we can change. But um, uh, what I'm really interested in is we, a lot of people are meat eaters because of historical reasons, cultural reasons, um, you know, societal pressure, um, ease. You know, like most of the vegetables you buy in shops taste like rubbish compared to what you can grow yourself. So if I had to eat a, a shop-bought carrot, I'd be eating more meat because, you know, sadly some of, the, some of the meat you can buy, even rubbish meat, is more satisfying than some of the rubbish vegetables, which is a real indictment on, on, on the modern food production system. But the other thing is not every bit of land is good for growing vegetables. And, in fact, just about everywhere in Australia where you grow crops, where you grow grain, where you grow pulses, where you grow vegetables, they've lost half their carbon um, since white people arrived. And, and the, 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 uh, just about everywhere they recommend this, it's in America, in Africa, in Australia, even in Europe, where you've lost carbon in soil, the best thing you can do is turn it back into grass. 50, you know, more than half the world's carbohydrate is cellulose. Mm. You and I can't digest it. Ruminants can. We have the opportunity to use land that we couldn't use otherwise to grow um, food for us. Um, we can't digest cellulose, but we can digest the milk and meat that come from animals that can digest cellulose. So I see it in very broad brushstrokes that, you know, some people, sometimes it might be a good idea to eat meat. A whole bunch of people, maybe not. Um, that's for them to decide. And um, uh, But if you want to grow the most food, sometimes using an animal is an okay thing to do to get the most food from a piece of land, depending on your geography, your um, climate. 
Yeah, I, I need to ask you this question because it comes up quite a lot. Um, a, a lot of animals owe their very existence to the fact that people want to eat meat. But they wouldn't exist without the fact that people want to eat meat. And so, you know, it's the sort of standard argument that if it wasn't for meat eaters, these animals wouldn't have a life. And, and in fact, they may have a very good life for a long period of time if they end up on Matthew's farm um, rather than uh, in a factory farm. And, and uh, what, what's, what's your view on, on that perspective? I don't agree with that perspective. I mean, I know I keep making equivalents to humans, but this is just my way of, um, of you know, uh, shedding a light on some of these tricky issues by us thinking about it in a different way. I mean, it would be like, um, you know, a futuristic movie where we're breeding children so they can work, you know, in factories and down mines. And then, you know, future generations saying, oh, but all those children won't exist if we don't breed them for them. Or for their organs. That's probably the easiest for, one. Yeah, okay. Need, for their organs. <laughs> I mean, I... It's the Kazuo Ishiguro book and movie where, you know, the kids realize at some point having this great time at school and having fun and parties it, it, and they it's realize coming to an end point. yeah I, I don't want to paint this as just the factory farm situation i'm painting where, where these animals are actually having a, a good experience and and then that comes to an end i mean in, in one sense matthew is arguing you know there's always a beginning and an end a animals are largely determined by by choices that humans make in in many ways literally even even in 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 parks uh wild parks game game reserves the the fact is they have an opportunity to actually exist because humans have these game parks i mean what what's your what's your view on animals having a a a long period of very good experiences but uh and and then that life comes to an end i mean i i think that you know, firstly, there's a practical reality, which is that's just not the case for the vast majority of animals in these systems. You know, as Emil noted, 95% are in factory farm farms. But if you're talking about just like a hypothetical question, I mean, you can look at uh, dog breeding, for example. You know, maybe that's a better equivalent. Like we breed our, you know, chihuahuas and pugs and they, you know, mostly have a pretty good lives in people's houses. Is it morally you know, okay to breed dogs for our, you know, pleasure and and so on. Um, and I, I honestly don't think that there's one clear answer. I think, you know, every case needs to be um, addressed individually. I mean, dogs might be one thing in certain species of dogs. There's arguments about, you know, dogs that are bred you know, for a certain look that are suffering with their nasal passages not working properly or they, you know, they get you know, all these kind of problems, the same with farm animals, like the um, the broiler chickens for the meat industry are bred, you know, to have such large breast meat that they, you know, uh, become crippled and can't walk and have problems breathing and so on. So I, I, I think there's no one answer. I think we shouldn't be breeding animals in mass quantities in order to exploit and use them uh, for our purposes um, when it means, you know, suffering, pain and, and death. Um, but there, okay. there might be exceptions to that depending. Can I move the conversation to a, probably the key practical question as far as I'm concerned? You know, we're looking at the common ground between you. The You both agree that factory farming is immoral. If we go, Matthew, to the more ethically reared animals, essentially your farm and how you know extraordinary the lives of those um, animals are until until they're ended, can we feed the world meat based on that system of farming? Yeah, undoubtedly we can feed the world meat. We just can't feed them gobs of meat like Australians eat and Americans eat. Um, uh, yeah, because because well, animals. You look at, at each individual animal, but we've domesticated a few. Pigs are essentially recyclers. They turn stuff we can't, don't, won't eat into something we can eat. Uh, cows, sheep, goats turn uh, cellulose, something we can't eat, into something we can eat. Um, you know, 95 percent know, of the world's um, soy is uh, is turned into oil for human consumption, and and we feed the soy um, pulp. Uh, which is worth less per, you know, it's worth more overall, you know, because you only get a small amount of oil from soy. But but it's worth less as a proportion. Um, we feed the, the the waste essentially from the oil um, production to the cows, 
Now, I forget, I had the numbers earlier today. We, we, we throw away or use in industry thousands of tonnes of cow fat every, every year is, is you know, thrown away because people don't want to eat animal fat anymore. And then we feed cows you know, some, in feedlots, probably soy protein, um, and we consume the vegetable oil. Anytime you see vegetable oil on a product, it's either palm oil or soy oil. Um, and and they are both environmental cat- catastrophes, and uh, and so there's a cost that we're not even seeing. You know, there, 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 but 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 the good thing about animal and animals, you know, when you grow wheat, you know, when you grow barley, when you, when you grow all these things, we can only eat the tiny tiny little seeds off the top, but something can eat the bottom and turn that into human grade food, and it would be a waste of our resources to not use the things we are gifted by nature. Uh, to their best advantage, and sometimes, not not all the time, and certainly not in massive quantities, putting something through an animal to turn it into human quality food is a really, really good use of the world's resources. You think that there are efficiencies to be gained, essentially, that with mixed farming, there's a role for animals right through the the, the cycle to be able to get the maximum out of our soil in a in a sustainable environmental way. Yeah, yeah. Look, look, look. look uh, soils don't exist without um, without animals. You know, like when when human, humans have, have have managed landscapes, whether it's in Australia through fire stick farming or in Europe through um, you know managed ecosystems, we have managed landscapes for millennia. You know, the Amazon, the most fertile parts of the Amazon are where they 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 created terra preta, the you know the fertile earths by by composting in, uh, uh, lots of waste, including animal waste and charcoal. And we created these these amazing um, fertile oases within the Amazon rainforest. Because most of it's actually not that very not very fertile. Animals have been part of ecosystems. They cycle nutrients. They're a really important part of ecosystems. Now you can use wild animals. You can hope that birds and rats and, and mice and lizards and bats you know, fly over your 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 paddocks and and spread the fertility that has always been spread over our landscapes. Or you can use um, uh, uh, managed animals, livestock, to 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 keep things productive. But yes, definitely there, there are efficiencies to be get to be had, and animals in some ecosystems that sometimes managed in the right way ha- are not strangers to, um, to to landscapes and can actually Im- improve the productivity for, for to create human grade food. So when we think about um, equity and access to meat at reasonable prices, you sort of think there is a way economically for meat to be incorporated, less meat than we eat in the in the developed world, probably at at inflate at increased prices, but essentially a sustainable way that uh, in, in which animals are humanely raised and it can sort of make sense and the world can still get some meat, but not as much as they get now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Look, it, it would take one point six Earths for everyone in, in the world to eat like Australia does because we eat so much meat, but also because we eat so much processed food. We don't have 1.6 Earths. So Australia, like a lot of other countries, will have to reduce um, their impact on, on the environment and that can be a, a lot of that can be by reduced meat consumption. But taking animals out of the equation just creates more waste in lots of cases. Let me bring this to Andine for a second. I mean, putting the ethics of taking a life aside, do you agree or have you looked at the question of whether animals are actually a helpful part of biodiversity and the you know the 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 regeneration of land i mean like like i mentioned i you know i I did my masters of environmental studies um and looked at a lot of the degradation caused by hard-hoofed animals in australia so you know i don't really see how that's having cattle and sheep is helpful if we're talking about the environment you know these areas that matthew's identified that don't have any other like use for us, so therefore we may as well, you know, let um, livestock be on them, and then use, you know, they eat the grass, and then we eat them, and so on. It's um, you know, these areas can be rewilded, and you know, Australia's like depleted. It's like stripped the country of of its like species and biodiversity and natural spaces you know, let's leave these areas alone and let the native animals and, you know, return to the, the richness that it used to be. And, you know, in terms, I mean, I guess in terms of the future, I wanted to point out that there's a huge amount of food technology um, developing. And I place a lot of faith in that. I know Matthew in his book has said that he, um, he sees that it's kind of a soulless product that provides little joy um, and doesn't add to our cultural fabric. But I would say that, you know, 
um, we can say the same about uh, farming animals for meat. I don't, I don't think it adds much mm. to our social fabric either. Um, and that, you know, and food technology, which will mean that, I mean, even today, the tests they've done with meat eaters, um, you know, that who can't distinguish between a plant-based burger and a meat burger, you know, and the you can make it nutritious and healthy, and um, and it has, you know, from the studies shown that it has like a hundred times um, less impact on the land, and it uses way less water, and so on. I mean, I think that is the solution for you know our world population. We've got like what seven, eight, eight billion people. It's skyrocketing still. Um, if we cut back 95% of our farming because we're no longer okay with doing, you know, cruel and ethical farming, then we're going to need to supplement our diet with, you know, with other foods. And, you know, not everybody can live on a, you know, a beautiful kind of idyllic farm and have acreage and, and land and grow their own vegetables. People are in sky-rise buildings in urban cities, and we need to have other um, technologies that can feed the population. And I think there are solutions. Key to this podcast is the principle of charity, and um, I'm I'm wondering whether both of you often, when you bring people together who have disparate views, um, rather than creating a more common view, sometimes in the argument, people actually have become more extreme in their views, meaning they now even more clear that uh, let's take on, on Dean's view that, in, in fact, veganism is even the thing to do um, now that I've had this conversation with Matthew. And I'm wondering, has, has uh, and, and I'll start with you, Matthew, first, and then go to Dean. Is there anything today that has softened or changed your view that, that you've heard, or in fact, has your view become even clearer and more hardened as a result of, of this conversation with, with Dean? In a way, I was hoping for some new arguments, I guess, and some, some new insights. And I don't feel that I got a lot of those. The, the thing is, from my perspective, you know, if people want to become vegan, if the, if the world wants to become vegan, great, good and well. It makes no difference to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think actually in, in lots of ways that would be a really good thing. But I, am, I, I, I guess I, I don't feel that I need to become vegan having had the conversation. My wife and I mm-hmm. have often said, you know, if we – didn't have access to good food, we, we probably would be vegan most of the time. But, um, mm. you know, you do have to have, you need to have time and you need to have money um, pretty much. Mm. And we're lucky enough to have, you know, uh, to be able to grow, grow our own food. Mm. So I didn't, yeah, I don't think I felt convinced, but I don't feel, you know, I don't feel any worse. I mean, I, I, what I really liked is that, that oftentimes I get vegan-splained where, where, where facts and figures are brought in that just don't seem to have any relevance to the argument. And I was really pleased that Ondine really stuck to, you know, to, to, to her argument and, and, and was really logical about the way she wanted to approach it. So from that perspective, she's one of, it's really nice to have, a, have this conversation because this is a conversation I love to have. You know, we, we get vegans work with us. Did, and come did, you, feel, did you feel now that, that Dean represented some of the strong points of your, con, your, your, your view rather than the weak points? Because it, it sounds like you've been in lots of conversations with vegans where you've, you've either felt that they've got the high moral ground or that there's data that... that you know, is, is slightly misrepresentative or not clear. No, I think she really nailed it. I think it was really good. And I think what's really nice is, like, I always get to be brought out as a spokesperson for meat. And I don't really, I don't want anyone to eat mm. any more meat than they do and probably eat less. And mm. and it's sort of weird mm. that I always get sort of put as the opposite of a vegan when actually, and I think Dean recognised this very early on, what we have 98% of things in common and we differ uh, at the death. Of, of the animal, I think that's that's the only place that we probably um, really substantially differ is that um, I I believe it's okay mm. to to uh, use an animal for uh, for for meat and she doesn't. So so Matthew, last question. I mean, there, there are a lot of presumptions. It, it seems that we all make around around animals that can't be validated. How much they feel, whether they actually would want a good life, and trade. 15 years of a good life and then go to the abattoir or not. I mean, we're making tons and tons of assumptions exactly about how they feel. Um, but if I, if I suggested to you that Undine could provide some evidence um, on, around, around veganism that would persuade you to, to move from 80% to 95%, 
um, and, and, and in fact, not have any pigs on your farm. Uh, what, what would that evidence be? What would she need to, what would she need to demonstrate? Yeah, look, I guess what she'd need to demonstrate is that, that even within a, um, a system that, that allows them to express their instincts where they're self-managing, that they're, they're doing what a pig wants to do, um, that they were still uh, traumatised by the experience, that it was mm-hmm. a day-to-day um, traumatic experience for them and, and that their life was not good. If their life was not good, uh, mm-hmm. then we shouldn't bring them into the world. Okay, thank you. Undine, question for you. How charitable do you think you've been in this conversation? I mean, I think I've, I'm open to listening and there's um, definitely things, you know, points that Matthew's brought up, you know, when he told the story about the cherry farmer and the possums. Now I want to go start a campaign to save possums. Like it doesn't, redu- it doesn't change my mind. It like just adds more compelling <laughs> things to my mm. to-do list. So, mm. um you know, I think I think there are those conversations that don't um, don't happen in in uh, the vegan community that uh, Matt's identified around. You know, the the um, animal victims of farming that should also be something that we note. Was it was there anything in Matthew's book uh, or any of the literature when when you looked at Matthew's writings that has has put a question in your mind or? said, I, I need to reconsider my view, uh, not change it, but at least reconsider it? Uh, no, I can't. I just felt just like disappointed at his conclusion, to be honest, um, because he was, you know, he's so passionate about the suffering of animals and it did so much research. And, you know, I really admire, you know, all the work that he did um, in his, you know, journalistic work. So you felt work. disappointed that he didn't agree with you? I felt disappointed by this. What I identified before is what I felt like the logic, like, rather, mm. you know, rather than two wrongs don't make a right. Let's add to the conversation. Let's not undermine the one. But, you know, I mean, I think, and I, it's, I don't mean to be rude, but it's, it's hard when Matthew and his family have a pig farm and they're, you know, it's it's very hard to change one's opinions and be open when your you know your um your salary <laughs> your lifestyle comes from the activity that someone's trying to tell you is concerning. Well, doesn't yours, Andine? Why? Well, your life and work and everything is based on being vegan in, in the same way. Yeah, if I suddenly started eating meat, my career would be over. <laughs> That's true. So I guess, yeah, I take that point. I mean, I watched this film. It's an American-based film about a, a free-range pig farmer. Just um, to Matt's point about, like, is there any information that would change his mind? It's a film called The Last Pig, and it's about, you know, this lovely uh, pig farmer in the U.S. Um, and his relationship with his pigs and his kind of slow kind of awakening to just the sentience of the pigs and the taking of the life. So those pigs were living like Mm. wonderful lives, as I'm sure Matthew's pigs are living. But it's just for him, and he decided to end his pig farming and go into other farming, hopefully Mm -hmm. farming that doesn't kill anybody, Mm. um, because he was, you know, he had these moments of looking into the eyes of his pigs, you know, just realizing he was kind of, needlessly taking their lives and and eventually feeling that that wasn't a choice he wanted to make anymore. I do think that the good news is that you are aligned on, you know, 97, 98% of things. And really the world that you both envisage is is incredibly um, similar. And the particular good news, as you've seen, Matthew, is you've been newly anointed as a vegan. You're now part of the club. (laughs) I'm in. You're in. So wonderful. So um, before we go, so just thank you so much to both of you. It's been an absolutely fascinating discussion and it's great that we've been able to focus on some core parts rather than make it too broad. Is there, um, you know, Ondine, you've got a new book out. Do you want to say a couple of words about that and where people could find you on social media? Yeah, I would love people to check out my book because it's really for the vegan curious and it's for, you know, reduction. It doesn't have a purist um you know, uh, perfectionist tone, because that's not what I believe is helpful. So um, I think it's actually quite aligned with Matthew's um, beliefs, except for a few a few small little <laughs> points. <laughs> yeah, Andine's book's great. Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh, uh, look, I think what I loved about um, uh, reading Andine's book is that it's for people who are uh, who are curious, and it was 
I guess through that that I saw most of her kindness and, and how she, she frames the world through this beautiful um, prism. Well, thanks to both of you. Um, and Actually, can I Lloyd return I... The, the compliment to Matthew and just say, like, you know, if everybody was as thoughtful and mindful and, you know, contemplative about these issues, we would be in a totally different situation than we are. So I appreciate, you know, his, um, you know, the amount of, of, of thought and research and everything that he's put into this whole area. And there's, his book is, is fascinating as well. Thank you so much to both of you for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Emil. Thank you. Thank you. you. Once again, thank you to our producer, Jonah Vogelman, and Emil, thank you. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.